man, there's so much computers and stuff up here. I don't know if I have room for mine. And uh, I hope I don't mess up anybody's stuff here. We are going to be, I'd like to have, uh, uh, I'd like to have someone to bring me one of those little pew, well, those pew Bibles, that, the one that's the New American Standard Bible. I just want to read a verse from this, from this translation here just in a moment. We are going to be looking at Matthew 28, and I'd like for you to turn to that passage, please. And we are going to be talking about uh, some interesting things that Jesus said before he left this world. There's a lot of military people in this, in this church and in this area. And I myself was in the military uh, longer than Pastor uh, Rosalind's been alive. Not quite that long. <laughs> long time. But let me tell you this. We all know what is marching orders. When, the, when your command comes to you and says, uh, we got some orders. I remember I was, on the, I was on the ship USS Trenton. I was a chaplain in the Navy for nine and a half years. Actually, nine years and about ten months. I was a torpedo man, nuclear torpedo man in submarine service. And I went to Grace College and got a degree in Greek. And I, my bachelor's degree. And I met John Wickham and all those great people there. And I went ahead and stayed for four years for two master's degrees. And, but when I got there, what I found out is that the word of God is very important to, to play to people everywhere, and it works everywhere we are. And, but I knew from the Navy that what marching orders were. I went out. After that, I went to, I got a professor in the Navy says, we want you to come on a tour of active duty as a chaplain. I did that, and I never forget. They, my order said, in that ship, it said 30 months, then we'll give you orders somewhere else. And I you know, don't know why I say 30 months, but it was apparently a standard for some thing. And so I went. And I remember we were in the Pacific, I mean, we were in the Mediterranean Sea, and the uh, commanding officer called me up to his quarters, and he says, hey, we got some message for you. You got new marching orders. And he gave me a paper, and he said, you have orders, you know, in my 30-month time, and then and the Navy's coming up, well, that tour. And they gave me orders to the Norfolk, Virginia, to the, to the chapel's office there. But that was my marching orders, and the disciples all know that Jesus is going to give them their marching orders. And it's important to realize that this is at the end of Jesus' life. Uh, he, has, uh, he has already uh, been crucified. He was risen from the grave. And the theme of 13 messages in the book of Acts all focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I like what the pastor said. That's something that's part of our life every day. Every day for us is Easter. So what happened when Jesus rose again on Easter Sunday, he appeared five times to people. One of those times toward the end, I think it was the last time, matter of fact, he appeared to ten disciples because the book of Acts says that Simon Peter, that uh, the book of Acts says that uh, Judas was already in hell. He had gone to his own place. But these people were there for purpose. And what happened is Jesus has told these twelve, I am going to give you your marching orders. It was nice. It was nice being in Jesus Christ Bible College for three and a half years. I mean, you have the best teacher that ever lived. And the, the uh, pastor was up here bragging about how wonderful I am. You know, I mean, I'd let, I did study a lot of Greek, and I've taught Greek for 20-something years. But the point is this. There's never, all the teachers that have ever lived in this world put together could not be a teacher like Jesus Christ was. He's the God-man. I like what that song says. There's one God, He exists forever in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 2,000 years ago, God the Son took on human form, which He'll be the God-man forever. And that means that He is the best teacher ever. Yes, they went out two by two. They went out 70. They did a lot of stuff. And they usually failed. One of the most amazing things about the disciples is that they 
they, it's hard to believe this, but 20 times in the Bible, 22 times Jesus said, they're going to kill me and the third day I'm going to rise again. The Bible says they never understood that. And we think, well, if I was there, I could have easily understood that. Probably if you were there, you would have been as weak theologically and all this stuff as they were. They were in a different culture, a different time. They did not have the completed word of God. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. But it's coming very, very soon after this. Now, the scholars of this world tell us that this Matthew 28 uh, section right here at the end of Matthew 16 to 11, 16 to 21 these verses are the, in the eighth post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Don't forget that the first one on Easter Sunday appeared five times. And then next Sunday, the week after Easter, he appeared to two times. And one of them, Thomas, was present. And they had, the disciples said, we've seen Jesus risen from the grave. Of course, we all know what he said. He says, I won't believe unless I see for myself and put my finger right there at his side and his hands and all this stuff. And, of course, then they went up there. By the way, in both passages, it says they were in this upper room, and Jesus appeared to them right through the wall. He already had a glorified body, and walls were not a, no problem, just like angels can go through stuff like this. And Jesus appeared to him, and what did Thomas say? What did Thomas do? Anybody remember what Thomas did the first thing when he saw Jesus? Yes, he declared who Jesus Christ is. He said, my Lord and my God. And I can tell you right now, if I went down to, if, if Jesus Christ is God like Thomas declared, that means that the Trinity is a true doctrine, but it also means Jesus Christ is God, and that means he is the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That means we have a, an exclusive religion. That means there's only one way. I could go to Washington, D.C. and go to those senators down there and say, my wife and I are going to Ukraine as missionaries. They say, bless you, my son. Here, take $100 and go out there and preach these people and, and spread the word. And if I say to them, we're going to teach them that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. All other people don't go there. What? Why are you so mean-spirited, hatred, racist, bigoted, and every other word that you can think of these woke people invented? And they would say, they would say that. Why? Because people don't like to hear this message of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, hey, if they hated me, they're not going to love you. They're going to hate you. This is not a popular message. But it's about Jesus Christ who was the one who could say all this stuff. Now, I want to focus real quickly in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 28. I just want to, we're going to focus on this Great Commission part, but I wanted to look just a few verses up toward the top. I should have probably put a sticker in this thing. Up at, in verse number 7, because what happens, we're going to see in just a moment in verse 16, the disciples went away to Galilee where Jesus had commanded them to go. It had been commanded. It had been prophesied. This was a very big event that they were going to go to in this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And in verse 7, an angel, the angel says, Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you. You see, they're commanded to go there also, ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, the scholars tell us that this is the only place where we can coordinate this eighth post-resurrection appearance, where we can coordinate 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where the Bible says that he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. And the word brother in the New Testament is the most common way 
brother and believer are the most common ways for designating Christians in the New Testament. And it's interesting that, like in John 6, when we read about the feeding of the 5,000, the only public miracle that Jesus did that's in all four of the Gospels, and John, he says, and the, well, probably in all these in all Gospels, but in John, it's interesting how Jesus says this idea of, of uh, going and quickly, and, and especially about the disciple, the brothers, and there's 5,000. All four Gospels say 5,000. And if you, get the, if you read that, you think it's feeding the 5,000, but it's not. It's the feeding of the 20,000. Only Matthew puts one little tiny note. They all say 5,000 men, andros, the word on air, and I like to say robot or android because the, the Greek, you know, the genitive case is android, andros. But think of this. The 5,000 men, but Matthew says besides women and children. Same thing when we say 500 brothers, the word brothers usually includes Christians, but oftentimes it includes a family. Most of the time the men would be mean by that, and it would be oftentimes a family. So we're, we're assuming that 1,000 people were coming up here. Paul says 500 brothers, and it's interesting right here. If you look at this, in Matthew 28, verse 7, what this angel said, go quickly and tell his, let's see, go quickly and, let me read this again, tell his disciples, okay, that he is risen from the grave, but in verse 10, the, you know, there's an appearance of Jesus all of a sudden. In verse 10, they meet Jesus on the way, and it says, uh, well, there's a lot of stuff's going to happen, but in verse 10, it says, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and take my word to my brothers, not just the disciples, we're talking general Christianity here, to leave for Galilee, and there they will find me. They're going to meet me up there. They know what they're going to be there. They know they're going to get their final marching orders. But I wanted to, wanted to let you know right now we're not talking just to the 12 or the 11. Now, it's going to specifically mention the 11. And by the way, sometimes the 10, the 11, or the 12 can be technical numbers, not numerical numbers. And sometimes that could just mean the group of disciples. In Matthew 15, I mean, yeah, Matthew, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, it'll talk about the 12. When Judas was already dead and in hell, but it still calls the 12, because sometimes these words became technical term for just Jesus' followers, his disciples. Now, let's go with all that in mind. I want you to take a look at verse 16. The Bible says, and then the 11. In this case, according, like I said in Acts 1.25, the Bible does say that Judas Christ was, Jesus, Judas was already in hell. He said he had gone to his own place. He was kind of like one of those people who had a, a religious experience, and he never was a born again, and uh, he followed and saw what it was. But Jesus, it was already predicted from the foundation of the world, and Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And they all said, is it me, is it me? But he knew who it was. And interesting, by the way, the disciples never even caught that. But it's interesting, there are these 11, and notice it calls them this word disciple. That is a very interesting word, because... Uh, I could look at this boy right here. How old are you? Twelve, Twelve years old, right? Aha. Uh-huh. Twelve years old. You know what that means? His favorite subject in school is math, right? See? I paid him a dollar to say that. No. <laughs> okay. Well, the root word for the word disciple, the word is mathetes. This is a noun, mathetes, M-A-T-H in English. That would mean the word math is the basic idea. We get our word math from this Greek word. Now, today... Math means to learn numbers, but 2,000 years ago, it means to learn everything. It means to learn the teaching of some person. 
and you learn the teaching, you obey the teaching, that means you become a follower, an observer, a doer of some person in his teaching. They even had, in the Greek culture, they even had peripatetic philosophers, which were Jesus was to a degree. Peripatetic just means the Greek word for walking around in circles, where you're walking around, and they didn't have a lot of classrooms like we have today. They'd walk around and teach, and the students would all walk, <laughs> follow and write down stuff. And in a sense, Jesus did that. So the point is this. These people are learners. And disciples, disciples do what their boss tells them to do. He, they do what their leader, their master, their, their professor, their teacher. And by the way, the word, even the word rabbi, is in the New Testament, the word rabbi meant a teacher. It does, not, it does not mean a religious leader like we think of rabbi today of the Jewish group. Okay, so then these 11, these 11 disciples, the reason I emphasize the word disciple, the math part, because later in this passage, Jesus is going to use that same word, that same word, mathetes, but he's going to switch it to the verb form, mathetuo, and he's going to use that in a command phrase, and we'll see what happens in just a moment. So then these 11 disciples, uh, they went away, uh, and really, I've kind of looked, if you, if you like little outlines, I've kind of said, I label this four actions of the, of the disciples and three commands of Jesus. The first thing they do is they went away into Galilee. What disciples do? They obey what their boss says. They obey what their teacher says. Jesus had just, we just saw that Jesus had commanded them and it had been prophesied that they were going to meet me up in Galilee. And they do exactly what they're supposed to do. They went away into Galilee. Now, there's some things we don't know. We don't know where this was. It says in a mountain or is it a hill. In Texas, it would be called a hill. <laughs> but the interesting thing is they went to a place that they knew where this place was. But we don't know a lot of details we would like to know. And some of the things we're going to see, I wish we knew, but we don't, we don't know. They went away into this place in Galilee. And what's interesting to me, they went to the specific place where Jesus had appointed them, where Jesus had commanded them to go. That is so important. You know, as a missionary, uh, you know, I was a Greek professor for over 20 years in the United States. But when we knew that God calling on our life was not to just stay here in the United States, but was to go to Ukraine and spread this word over there. It's something that you just know the Holy Spirit is telling you to do and you have to go. And so, but what they did is they said, Jesus had said, meet me up at this place and we're going to go. Now, it's interesting to me that, uh, well, let me just highlight on this. I'll bring this out in just a moment. But they, they're going to do exactly what he had told them to do. Now, in, it's interesting, when we go to this next verse in just a moment, it's interesting that what had happened, what's going on now, the disciples are going up there, and there's this huge crowd going up, and they're beginning, and keep in mind, they're all believers, they're all disciples, they're all followers, but they know, they're beginning to realize this is going to be the time. I mean, he's already been killed and he's risen from a grave. But most of these vast majority of these people have not seen Jesus yet risen from the grave. The, the 11 have, but most of these other ones had not. And so what happened? They know that this is going to be the end real quick. He had already told them a lot of doctrine when he's going to coming back and all that stuff. They didn't get a lot of stuff, but soon they're going to understand. But they also know that he's going to be telling them. What's going to happen when he leaves? And they know it's going to be a responsibility on them. And it's going to apply to us because it's, we're his disciples. And so it's very important how the, all this plays out. I want to cover verse 17 real quickly because I really want to focus on these next couple verses. And it's interesting. 
when they saw him, think of it, this big group of people. Let's, let's just say a thousand people were there. We don't know every detail, of course. A thousand people there. And let's say they had something like a uh, 200-year-old building like Preston City Bible Church. used to be a Baptist church, Bible church. But think of this. Let's say it went back all the way across that street to hold a thousand people. That's why you have to kind of, that's going to come into play in just a minute. There's some things we don't know in the Bible, but we can kind of give an idea, try to explain what happened. And here's what I think did happen. Because the Bible says they saw him. That's the second thing they did. First they obeyed, and then he came up here, they saw him. Now, I think what happened is this. We, when they saw him, for, for sure, he's not a ghost, he's not a spook. This really is him. This is him. And notice it says they worshipped him. They worshipped him because he is God. Remember in uh, John 1, 12, the Bible says he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them power to become the uh, children of God. Now, what's interesting to me is that he, he came and they rejected him. But as many as receive him. And, you know, today we put so much more. He said, as many receive him, he gave them power to become children of God. But what's interesting to me, these same people, we've seen how Thomas, when he bowed down, he, he said, when he, bowed, when, he saw, when he saw Jesus, how he said, my Lord and my God in, in John chapter 20. The same thing, when, every time Jesus is with these people, he reveals who he was and he reveals more and more information. And in, in this passage in John, he's beginning to say, he's beginning to make the gospel clear to them. Only John of the four Gospels, he's the only one who tells why he wrote his book. And it's evangelistic. At the very end, he says, Jesus did many other things, many other signs, because he centers his whole book around the seven sign miracles and of what, of what he did. And it's interesting that he says many other signs that Jesus did, but these are written. He did a lot of stuff that's not in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's Messiah. He's God. And that by believing, you can have eternal life in his name. It's very interesting to me because these, John gives us a very specific purpose. And when these people worship him, they worship him, they acknowledge him as God. In my theology, you cannot be a believer in Christ Jesus with eternal life unless you know who Jesus Christ is. You have to believe Jesus, who he is and what he did. You do not have to, John makes it more clear than anybody else in the whole Bible, never one time does he use the word belief, but 99 times he uses the verb believe. And I, my favorite passage is in John, well, there's a couple of them in John 6, I'm telling you, it's a powerful passage. But in John 6, 47, Jesus uses that famous amen, amen in Greek, in the old King James, verily, verily. And I like how some newer translations do it. They really, only John in the whole Bible gives that double amen thing. That's never in the Bible except for John. But basically what it means, Jesus saying something like, I guarantee you what I'm going to tell you now is true. Like, I think in the New King James says, most assuredly I say to you. But here's what he says. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. I'm, friend, I'm telling you, friends, it does not get any more clear than that. You can front load, you can back load, you can say we have to do this, we have to be baptized, we have to do this, we have to do all this stuff. No. The Bible makes it very clear how we can have eternal life. A lot of that other stuff is important after we believe. We need to learn a lot more. But let's keep going here. They worship him. That proves that he is God. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is they, what they did was something that would not be in the Bible if God had decided Ron Mitten should write the, <laughs> write the Bible. Because I don't like this next part. 
It says some doubt it. You know, I like. I don't know about you, but I like for things to happen the right way. And uh, I used to live in a nuclear submarine, and I just I would just do some serious praying and said, Lord, I pray that these guys would do the right thing today because, you know, there's a lot of water here, and I prefer to be up there rather than down at the bottom. So we like things to be. I like things to be done the right way, and I don't like doubt. Hey, listen, it wasn't every day that people rose again from the grave. There's a lot of reasons to doubt, but I think it's this. Now, what I'm going to tell you, what I think, what happened. Pastor Moreland might say, okay, we don't have one rotten men to come back here again. We don't know what happened, but here's what I think happened. It's logical. These people were solid Christian believers. They're going up here because they want to obey Jesus Christ. They're going up here because they know he's going to give them final marching orders, and he's got some important stuff to give them. And they don't doubt who is Jesus Christ. But don't forget, there's a thousand of them that go clear back across there. And guess what? It wouldn't be for a thousand years in London after this, that glasses were invented. So this massive crowd, I can prove it right here. Everybody take your glasses off. How many fingers do I have up? Well, that lady in the pink shirt said two hands. Or three hands, whatever she said. The point is, I think what happened is this. Those people couldn't see. Up in the third, the front third people, I'm sure they bowed right down and worshipped him. Says they did. Says they worshipped him. But you know what? I'm glad these other people didn't worship him because Jesus said, hey, there's going to be some people coming saying, I'm the Christ. The Christ is here. The Christ is here. Don't believe it. He said, don't believe it until you know it's me because he's coming back again. He promised that. He says, when you know it's me, then yes, but don't believe otherwise. And I think those other people says, who is that guy? Don't forget, they didn't have these. Now, you might say Jesus would have given them special glasses. No, I don't think he did. But the point is this. The Bible says they doubted. And it wasn't because, I'm for sure that it wasn't because of their faith was weak. They're going there for a reason, for obedience. But I like these next words. In verse 18, it says, when Jesus came and spoke to them. Man, can you imagine when Jesus came and spoke to them? All of a sudden, the doubt fled. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now that probably has never happened in your house, but it's happened in your neighbor's house. This probably happened in your neighbor's house on a hot August day, especially some of you Navy people that traveled around the world and your Army people. And if you've been down south, I've seen it myself, not my house, but my neighbor's house. You would go to church on a hot August day and Sunday night you would come home after lunch and your neighbors had said, I mean, after church and your neighbors said, let's come to our house for fellowship. And you go there and they go to the kitchen, not in your house. I understand that. I understand but in your neighbor's house, and they flick the light on, and cockroaches go, Phew. It's like when the Jehovah's Witness gets the real truth, Phew. they're gone. The light hits the sour bugs, and they flee. But think of this. I think that's what happened here. When Jesus spoke to them, wow, the, dar- the darkness is gone. The doubt is gone. They all bow down and worship him, because they know who is Jesus Christ. He's the guy that we worship. He's God in the flesh. Don't forget he- when the incarnation happened 2,000 years ago, God lost nothing. There was no attribute, nothing lost in God. But he gained. He gained something. He gained a human nature, and he will have that forever. When Jesus Christ comes again, the angel said, just like you saw him leave, you're going to see him come again. He will be the God-man forever. They know who he is. They bow down and worship him. If Ron Minton had read this book soon as they, they bowed down and worshipped him, all of them did that, I, I would have said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But Jesus didn't say that. 
He's a, he's a lot smarter than me. He knew what to say. He said, I have something to say for you. It's amazing. When he said this, he spoke to them, no doubt. And he says, all power, right, authority, it's exousia. It's the same word in John 1.12. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the exousia, the power, the right, the authority. And think of this. Most of the root people in this room, I'm sure, are born again. But not one person here became a born again except by the authority of Jesus Christ. Not your authority, not the pastor's authority, no one's authority except for Jesus Christ. And we cannot even imagine with our puny little brains that we have how Jesus could say, all this authority is given to me in the universe. Can you imagine heaven and earth? I mean, it's impossible for our brain to even come see that. But we can think of this. We can say he is absolute sovereign boss of the universe. He's the one we obey. He's chose us. We believe in him for eternal life. And he takes care of us. We serve him. We do everything we can. We try to help people. We give them the gospel. None of that stuff gives us eternal life. That's all based on Jesus' sacrifice, his cross work. And he takes care of that part, but he expects us to do what we can do. And, that, and the disciples are beginning to see that. Now watch what happens next. He said this, all the authority in the universe is given unto me in heaven. We usually think of heaven where he lives, earth where we live. And the point is, if we, and we're not going to take time to t- do this, but if we had just a moment to turn to John, or the end of Mark, the last two verses of Mark, and read that, it's an amazing thing that happened. The Bible says that Jesus ascended up into heaven, and the disciples went everywhere spreading the word of God. But then it says the Lord working with them. Not just through the Holy Spirit. Yes, that happened. He's going to make a promise right here. Is he's going to guarantee that he's going to be there. How could it be possible? How could Jesus, how could this be true what this says? How could they go spread the word around and the Lord work with him? He just went up into heaven because he's the God man. It's not a problem for him. He's God. He's not just a mere man like we are. So notice what happens then. And we're going to focus really a lot on this next, on this verse right here. Now, When Jesus says that, when he establishes who the real authority is, they know, they know, we're going to see these commands of Jesus, they know he's talking to them, just like he's talking to us. And the first thing Jesus said is go. Now this passage is kind of like a nine-month pregnant woman. No one in this room can tell more about what that is, except for a few of these ladies and the pastor, because he's got a lot of kids. I don't know how many, every time I come, there's some new kids running around here. But anyway, that's another story. By the way, you've got a long ways to go to catch up with my son. Believe it or not, he just had his eighth. I told him, I said, Brian, you know, you, if you want to let your wife live a while, you might slow down and stop at nine or ten. He says, we've got to get at least the football team or whatever that is. Anyway, but the point is here, Jesus is going to give some commands. And every word in this verse is so loaded with information. It's just amazing. The first thing he said was Go. And I can remember reading a commentary in the old journal that Jerry Falwell first put out many years ago. He said, because a lot of people who don't really know Greek, they read this passage and they said, oh, it's not a command, it's just, a, it's just as you go. It's a participle means while you go, if you go, while you go. And even, even John MacArthur's commentary had a note like this. And I can tell you this, one thing, is that is not what the word means. In this context... You have, to know how, you have to know the different syntactical uses of a Greek word in the context when you're arguing theological point from a point here. 
And I'm going to show you. I'm going to take some time to show you. It's going to be a few technical things. He is telling these people this is not a suggestion. This is not casual. This is mandatory. This is going to be very important. By the way, it's interesting. In chapter 10, verse 5 of the same book, Matthew, that same Jesus looked at those 11, those 12 at that time, and he said, don't go. That's interesting, isn't it? He said, don't go. But he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Not yet. First, we're going to go to the Jews, give them a chance. Okay, if we know that they don't accept him. Some do, most don't. But now, he's going to make it very clear, and this very same thing is going to go, he's going to go to all nations. That stuff about the Jew first is gone. Now it's for everyone. But I want to focus just for a moment on this idea of go. And this is, there's a lot of syntactical ways we could categorize this. But what I want to do is just show you a couple verses from the Greek Old Testament, which is the Bible, the primary Bible that the disciples used. And I can prove very easily that Jesus quoted a couple times from the Greek himself. I think Jesus probably t- used Hebrew when he taught most of the time, but sometimes he used the common Bible that they had, which was the Greek New Testament. I mean, which was the Greek Old Testament. But in Matt, for example, in Genesis uh, 27, verse 13, it, the Bible uses almost an exact same form of the Greek as we have here. This is where Rebecca commands her son Jacob to say, Obey my words, go and get this stuff for me. She's not saying to him, Obey my words, go. And by the way, if you feel like going, obey my words, if you feel like going, or if you go, when you go, do this stuff. No. She's giving a harsh command. It's the same exact, almost letter for letter, the exact same Greek phrase. So what happens when these type of errors, participles are used in, in the, when these participles are used in a, in a sentence with, and the main verb is, a, and usually it's an aorist tense, it oftentimes has an imperatival idea, and that is it's a very strong command. And if you've had second year Greek, what happens, you learn this, the various Greek stuff has a, what we call syntax. And it can get, you can get a lot of uh, different understanding of this. But this definitely, in this context, he's talking to give it a strong command. Genesis 37, 14, it's again, it's almost exactly the same phrase. And it's here it says, Jacob says to Joseph to uh, go and see your brothers and uh, see if they're okay and come back and give me a, a thing. He didn't say to Joseph, uh, oh, by the way, if you happen to be going down to a different part of Egypt, uh, check on the brothers and come back and give me a report sometime. This was an urgent situation. Jacob gives him, he says, he gives him a command and it's the same construction. He says, go, get a report and come back and tell me. So this, what we're saying here in every one of these cases, it's very important to study the Bible and especially in Greek language in its context of what's happening. Exodus 5.18, again, almost identical. Pharaoh says, go, work. He's talking to the Hebrews, and he gives them some pretty hard threats. It's interesting that uh, this is after the death of the firstborn when he does this. He says to Moses, take your first flock and, and the herds and go, get out of here. So a couple times he uses this same Greek construction, and he's not just saying making a suggestion. He's not just saying, as it happens. He's given a command, go do this. Now, flip over to the New Testament, and uh, there's one other one that I kind of mentioned already in Exodus 12, but look in Matthew 2.8. In Matthew 2.8, it's interesting that uh, Herod would not have been in a casual mood when he said, to looking for Jesus, he said, oh, why don't sometimes, if you happen to be in the area of Galilee and 
or wherever this place he went, you know, Jude, uh, Bethlehem. If you see him, uh, find out, you know, let me know about it. No. He commanded these wise guys, if you will. He says uh, in this passage, Matthew 2, 8, go, find. He said, go and find this kid and let me know about it. Of course, he lied about it. He said, you know, I need to go and honor him and all that stuff, too. It's clearly that this was the same situation. Another one, Matthew 2.13. This is interesting, too. This is when, uh, this is when the uh, angel came, comes to Joseph and uh, when Jesus was a little boy. And it's uh, interesting, Greek word, paideon. And they, the angel comes to Joseph. And he didn't say, because Herod was getting ready to try to kill Jesus. And this angel was going to say, take him down to Egypt. He's not going to say, by the way, uh, if you have times one of these days when you're just walking around and you're going somewhere, go into Egypt, you know, if you're in Egypt, and do this. The angel says, and very urgently in this context, the angel says, get up, go. It's very urgent, but the same Greek construction. Now, why are we emphasizing this? Because I've read in two, in a one, like I said, John MacArthur's commentary and in this other theological journal, and where they mess this up. Most people get it correctly, but a lot of people do not. And when I started preaching on this passage, I said, I want to find out what this means, because I've read different commentaries of what. So what I did is I, I did a 40-page research paper, and I read it actually, not at ETS meeting, I read it for the American Academy of Religion, because <laughs> they were going to be in Pittsburgh, I mean, in uh, St. Louis, near where we were living at the time where I was teaching. And so I, I, read, I did a lot of research on this passage, because I want to know what it really says. And I'm the kind of guy that I'm a little bit afraid to preach if I don't know what the Bible really says in that passage. Then the next passage I want to focus is on uh, in verse 7, even right here, the angel said, and I have the Greek stuff, and if anybody wants this stuff, I can email you this little study of Greek words and stuff like this. I'd be glad to do that. But the angel commanded these women to go and tell. I mean, think about it. This is an urgent situation. Jesus had just come out of the grave, and they said, quick, go and tell. Okay, you know, all this stuff has to be taken in context, of course. But clearly, this stuff is very, very important. And by the way, this same, here's what's very interesting in the parallel passages of this, in Mark 16, 7, he even has the imperative uh, form, the indicative form, the, the aorist active imperative uh, form, but not a participle, but he even gives a go command, which proves that the participle of the same structure that, that he uses over in uh, this, the, other par the other gospel, in Matthew 28, 7, that is also an actual, actual command. The last one we'll look at is, or mention, is Acts 16.9. And it's an interesting thing here. Again, it's an aorist participle, aorist imperative ver verb. And it's this context. It's almost, it's almost all the same. And it's in the Macedonian. It's interesting. This is what the Macedonian call. And the Macedonian call, when this uh, angel appeared or whoever appeared to Jesus, I mean, appeared to Paul, when the Macedonian call came, they didn't say, oh, if you go over this way. No, they said... Uh, the call was, uh, come, help. So what happened? These people said, quickly, come and help us. And, of course, Paul went over there and preached this, preached this word to those people. So what we're saying here is all this stuff is, all this stuff, and there's a lot more stuff here I have here, but which, that's enough on that. When Jesus said this, they all knew exactly what he's saying. He was not saying, this is a casual thing, this is an option Here's what we can, there's several ways we can think about this. No, he was given a strong command to go. And not only that, but look at that tiny next word, 
go you, or the old King James, go ye. What he's saying is that I am going to get my work done through you Christians, not through the unbelieving world. Sometimes in God's sovereignty and providence, he uses the unbelievers for us to work with as well. But right now, he's telling those Christian believers, I want you to go and you're going to get this work done. What's really interesting to me is that the Christian believers, I'm sure that when they were when they were there, they knew he looked at them when he said this. They knew exactly he's speaking right to their face. And it's interesting. He even says the Bible says, go you therefore. And we can say, why that? Because he just said all the power of the universe, all the authority is mine. He's going to be with us. The disciples are getting very, very scared. I can guarantee you right now they can say, whoa. We can tell by Jesus' reaction. He looks at those disciples. He knows they don't have a clue how bad this is, how serious it is. He knows that they cannot do it. Why? Because they're weak just like you, just like me. They're weak. They have to have this promise he's going to give them to make them get going. Hey, when Nancy and I decided to go to Ukraine, I can guarantee it wasn't just an easy thing to happen. And I was quite scared. I mean, I tell you what, I had already been to Ukraine seven years in a row just to teach for a couple weeks at a time. I knew this culture a little bit. I knew the, cult, the, the weather and a lot of stuff. And I knew it can be pretty dangerous over there. And there was some stuff. There was some, some fear. But I remember thinking of this promise that Jesus gave. And he says, and we're going to see this in just a moment, how Jesus says, don't worry. You're not in this job alone. And that's what's going to happen here. When he says, go therefore, I think that's the main thing, is because Jesus have this, has this authority and He's worthy of our obedience no matter what he tells us. But he, because he has this authority, then that means we have the reason to go. And he says, not only that, in the old King James, it says, go and teach. Probably in your Bible, it means to make a disciple. This is where that second math comes in. This is the same word that we said for the 11 disciples. But here it's a verb form. And the, the, the Greek word, ver, the verb form, mathetuo. And he gives a command. Now, we don't have this word in English language. But if we did have this word, Jesus would have said, go and discipleize. And that's why your translation might, your newer translation might say, go and make disciples. Because that's the best thing that we can do with this kind of a word. When he does that, this word actually is used sometimes of even becoming a believer. But in this context, it's very clear that it includes becoming, making believers, but it includes some other stuff. And he actually mentions the stuff. And that's what's very interesting to me. He's going to mention some stuff that they're supposed to be doing. The first thing he's going to say, go uh, and make disciples. And this is the same thing we've seen before, make these followers. And not only that, the second command he gives, not only that, but look who they're to do with this. All nations, no longer just to the Jews. This is to everyone. That means whenever we try to win someone to Christ and train them, it doesn't make any difference. It reminds me, I, was just tell, I think I was telling Mike this yesterday, when I retired, I think I told you this, when I retired, not when I retired, but when I finished my sixth year in the Navy Reserve as a chaplain, I was sixth year with the Marines, and I tell you, that was the best time in my life when I worked with these Marines. I mean, that was serious military right there, this Navy stuff. And believe me, I've been in the Navy longer than probably anybody here, and I can tell you the Navy are a bunch of wimps compared to these guys. <laughs> anyway, it was a great situation, but I'll never forget the last day we had this big meeting, and, the, and the, uh, my commanding officer was a strong grace believer, if you can imagine this. And he gathered all the officers and senior enlisted in this big room, and he said, and he you know, gave me all these, tell me how wonderful it was, like they always do. But then he said this, 
the chaplain's going to give us a last word of wisdom. Of course, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. And so I said, okay, Jesus, you better do some quickly stuff. <laughs> give me some stuff to say. And it just came to me, and I think the Spirit gave me the right words. I said, I looked at him and I said, and keep in mind I've been preaching to these guys for, 12, for six years. It was a three-year term, but I got done twice. And I said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and you all qualify. And that just came out just perfect. So much so that the commanding officer prayed. He prayed in front of all these Marines. He prayed for me. And what he prayed, what I heard was, what I heard was the commanding officer has given every, all the leaders in this, in this uh, regiment, he's given all the leaders in this company, in the regiment, to say, if you're a Christian, don't worry, it's the law, you're allowed to be a Christian right here. And I think that's what's happening right here. When Jesus says to spread this word to everywhere, he's not talking just to hold it to yourself. This is the word we carry around the world to teach or to make disciples of all nations. Again, it's automatically assuming that if you're going to make a disciples, they have to be believers. That's one of the first things. The fact the word disciple, oftentimes, like I said, it's oftentimes used to become a believer. But the main focus of disciple in the New Testament is that, like Jesus said, that if you're my disciples, he said to those Jews following him and to the twelve, if you're my disciples, like we said earlier in the, in the pictures, then you do what I tell you to do. When you do that, you are my disciples indeed. And that's what he's focusing here. Focus on here to make disciples. The first thing you have to do, when he's telling these people to go around the world, he's saying the first thing you have to do is bring them to faith in Christ Jesus. That means tell them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again the third day. And don't put any artificial stuff to it. Don't say you have to believe and be baptized. Don't say you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. No human being has ever made Jesus Lord of their life on, on the planet Earth until they had the Holy Spirit. And that happens a billionth of a second after you believe. Okay? But you can't do it before you believe. So make the gospel clear. But that is very important to get the gospel out. That's the first step. Then he says to do something that would not be in the Bible if Ron Mitten had written it. Have you ever noticed all the stuff that shouldn't be in here if I had written this? That's because God knows what he's doing. He wrote this. He says, baptize them. And that's, we know that water baptizing, baptism does not have anything to do with eternal life. The amazing thing to me is that Jesus said this here, which means that it's so important that water baptism is important once you become a believer. And then he's going to say, we need to indoctrinate people, teach them doctrine. But in this baptism thing, it's, Jesus says it's so important, we're going to be doing this. In fact, there could be some people in this room that are believers and you haven't been baptized. You need to talk to the pastor about that, because that's what Jesus said. That's important. It's interesting to me, he says, baptize them. Remember I've said every word? Who's the them? The people that you just won to Christ to spread around the world. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't think I told you a story. I'm pretty sure I told you guys. But when the first time we had Tanya here in May, we picked up the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And the first Sunday night we were at a church in a town in Texas I'd never been to in my life, never heard of the church, never heard of the pastor. Now they support us, by the way. Tanya was there, and I said, Tanya, I told she's going to do the same thing she did in the Sunday school class. You're going to say a few words, sing a song, and you, and you crane in. And, you know, I'm, I know she had this ability, but it's the first time. And she said, okay, okay, I can do this. So we're right there in the pew, and the pastor was getting ready, and she said, and she said, she looked over here, and they had a, a baptistry here, and she said, Ron, what's that big hole in the wall behind the pastor? She said, is that for the choir? 
And I said, that's for baptizing. And she says, oh, well, she would say it the right way, but it means, wow. In fact, our church in Ukraine had built a brand new baptistry, but outside. <laughs> and Ukraine, it gets pretty cold, too, by the way. Anyway, but the, what I'm saying here is that Jesus gives this strong command to baptize these Christian believers in the name. I like the singular name. It doesn't prove the Trinity, but I can guarantee it teaches the Trinity. It's, this verse teaches the Trinity is a true doctrine. And I like that song you guys sing here. Blessed Trinity, holy, 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 holy. That's what the angel said whenever, in, uh, whenever they came in, um, in uh, Isaiah 61. Now look at this. In the name of the Father and of the Son, Holy Spirit. Usually we say something like this, and there's legitimacy to this. And we have to be careful when we're talking about the Trinity. Trinity is one of those doctrines that we don't know everything we'd like to know. And we can say everything we, as far as the Bible goes. But if you go beyond what the Bible says, then you're going to become a cult. You're going to get into heresy. And that's happened to most cults. But anyway, there's a, a sense in which we could say the Father plans everything. And the Jesus Christ, the God-man, came down when he became man. And he finished, he did the work, he carried out the plan, you might say. And the Holy Spirit is what makes it happen in our life and in the Christian church and the history of Christianity. So it's kind of like what we could say that. But what, we, what we wanted to say here in this passage is that they all have an important part to play. Now, I can just see, I mean, I know how this, I've had enough experience. You see this white hair, I've been around the world, I'm around the, well, I've been around the world seven times, but I've been, I have been in 32 countries, by the way, but not to live a lot of them. Some of them just flew in and flew out. But I can tell you this, I can say this, that there's a lot of situations in the world that are difficult, and they know it's difficult. And now Jesus has given them, and they know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And Jesus can see it right in their face. He, know, he knows them better than they know themselves. It's not going to be easy. He knows that they're, not going to, they're going to be failures. But he has a plan. And I like the fourth thing he commands to do, them to do. And he's still not finished yet. Can you imagine he's still told to go and win all these people to Christ, baptize them and, uh, in the name of the Trinity. And then, by the way, when he mentions the Trinity, that's another exclusivism. The Trinity is a very exclusive doctrine. If that's true, then all these other religions in the world are false. And that's what Jesus says right here. And here it's interesting. He says, teaching them. This is not the word disciple. That, the word, that other word is translated teach in the old King James. This is actually it's a for, the verb form of the word didaskalia, which is a very common word in the New Testament, which means to teach. In fact, it's the same exact word means teach, teaching or doctrine. It's the same these are the same two words, teaching and doctrine, is didaskalia. And it's interesting, he says, teach them. It's very, very important that once people are believers that they get indoctrinated. You remember when I talked to these little kids up here? Well, that was to all of us. You have to get indoctrinated with God's point of view because your whole life, whether you know it or whether you like it, you're taken in the world's point of view. It's so everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's important that we take in God's point of view. How do you do that? The Word of God. And you need a lot of it explained to you. That's why you have a pastor who knows what he's talking about. And so Jesus says, teach them, these people. And it's really amazing how this word observe. If we really try to tell everything this word means, it would probably take the day to do this. But we're talking a lot of stuff. Observe, it's kind of like you have to live the whole life of Christ to get all this. Because it basically means to know, obey, uh, to do, to believe, to everything, including witnessing, everything that Jesus did, everything that we're to do now in this life when he's gone, this word includes all of that. He says, I want you to teach them everything. 
And notice this. He says, Every, not some things, all things that I've commanded you. It's why preacher Rosalind preaches from Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Acts, they said they proclaimed the whole counsel of God. And I'm telling you today, we live in a world where people just say, I mean, we're going back to the old 1800s where the liberals just say, only the, only the exciting parts are inspired. Or, you know, this stuff, scientific part or whatever that's not inspired, just the part that jumped out and grabbed you, that is inspired, like Shakespeare or something. But Jesus says this all, and that is so important. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a pastor who just says, Do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And I've heard this myself with my own ears in the Navy one time, another chaplain was preaching. He says, You believe in the resurrection of Christ, and it was Easter time, near Easter time. He said, The literal resurrection, he says, I'm so glad, I'm so happy you do. He said, I don't believe that. But I'm so one, I rejoice with you. I would pay for you to have a religious service like this. I think it's the most thing, wonderful thing in your life. Not everybody believes it. I don't believe it. And if you don't believe, that's fine. But if you believe, that's wonderful. And that's what they, and these guys get paid. Hey, and they breed. That's even worse. That was an anecdote. So, but let me tell you this. By the way, I was a Navy chaplain for 30 years after I was a torpedoman. I went from killing them to saving them. But let me tell you this. The military chaplains are the highest paid group of clergy on planet Earth. I'm telling you that right now. And a lot of them know that, and that's why they're there. But Jesus said, teach them to do all this stuff because that's what I've told you to do. And I can tell you this right now, the disciples were shaking in their boots. If they'd had boots, you could, if they were up here, you could hear this. You could, we think there's an earthquake. There's, we saw a siren go by, and, there's, and you could hear the building rattle, rattling. That's because if they were here right now, their knees would be shaking. You'd think the building was rattling because they would be so scared. You have to put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Think what these people must have been thinking. And they were scared. And Jesus looked at them and says, we've got a bunch of weaklings right here. Don't worry. I've got five minutes. We're going to be done. And then Jesus says, when he looked at them and he says, and lo. Just two little words. In Greek, do it's only three words. No, four words. Four letters. Okay, four letters. So he says, it do, it's a small word, but it means, wait, I've got something very important to tell you. <laughs> and lo, that's a pregnant word right there. I mean, it is loaded with stuff. It's very important. And I'm sure they're saying, what is it, what is it? And he says, I, in Greek it's emphatic, I myself. Jesus said, I myself will be with you. Man, I could just see the disciples I remember the time when demons came and demons feared no one. They could rip chains and have them demon-possessed men and throw them in the fire. And all of a sudden, demons feared no one. But when Jesus came, they <laughs> shuddered. They feared, no, don't cast us out before our time and let us go to these pigs and all this stuff. I remember the time when Jesus, they, they were saying, I remember this, this same Jesus commanded and the wind and the waves obeyed him. I can see him raising Simon Peter's mom from the dead. He did a lot of stuff. That's a guy he's promised. Wait a minute, Simon Peter's mother. I mean, his wife. Sorry, I said his mom. This kid has corrected me. And you might say, how did Simon Peter have a wife? He was the first pope. You have to ask him in Rome about that, but it's, what, it's true. <laughs> he had a wife. And, but listen to this. I think it was Simon Peter's mother-in-law he raised, right? Okay, but he had, that means he had to have a wife. But the point is this. They saw this stuff, and they began to say, Wow. This same guy 
has promised us emphatically that he himself is he's getting ready to be dead, but he's, but he's here. He conquered death. He's right in front of us. We know what's going to happen. And I think they're beginning to take, say, I think we can do this. Only Jesus could make it stronger, but he even put in the word always. I'm with you always. That's pretty strong. What it means is that there's never going to be a time in your Christian life you can do anything for Jesus Christ, but he's not right there with you. Does he guarantee it's going to be easy? No. Does he guarantee you're not going to die in a car crash? No. Does he guarantee you're not going to get sick? No. Does he guarantee that people are going to love you? No. It guarantees they won't love you. What it means, he guarantees that he's going to be with you. He's given you a job to do, and he says if you're willing to do it, he's going to be with you. That's how easy it is. In fact, I was in a church recently, and the guy came up to me and he said, Ron, who, do, who does God use? And I said, Jesus will use every Christian that is willing to learn his word and wants to be used. That's who he uses. You want to be used? I can guarantee he's going to give you the ability to do that. And this is, these people begin to, the only, it seems impossible that it could be any better, but he even makes it stronger. Look, look at this. He says, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, to the end of time. That we could say, we could understand this. I'm going to be with you to the rapture. That hasn't happened yet. At least I hope it hasn't. <laughs> if it has, those mid-trip guys are true. <laughs> okay, it hasn't happened yet. I can guarantee you that. That means, by the way, he's still with us. And the pastor, what the pastor, I like what the pastor said up here. He has an emphasis not just on doctrine, but putting this stuff as part of our life. I mean, we have a job to grow this church. Quite frankly, I'm pretty encouraged because this is a bigger group than I've seen in the other times I've been here. And I know there's people that are sick and a couple of people, he told me they aren't even going to be here today because they're sick or traveling or something. But here's the interesting thing here. Jesus, I'm going to be with you until the end of time. There's never going to be a time you can do anything for Jesus. It was not that long ago that Nancy and I were traveling, not this time, but some other time we were traveling. And i never forget, I went to the last time we came, this big giant van. Believe it or not, we got a bigger one this time. I remember last time we came, we went through the Wendy's drive-up because our van would not fit under any of them but Wendy's because they have this big wall. You know, you drive up there. <laughs> and I gave the lady a gospel tract, and I thought she would say, thank you so much. And she said some cuss words and threw it back at me right in my face. And did it hurt me done? No. If she's a believer in the beam of seat, she's going to talk to Jesus about that. Actually, she won't say a word. He's going to talk about it. If she's not a believer at the great white throne, she's going to be wishing she would have done something different. But my job, all I did was trying to do what Jesus said. I just read the gospel. It didn't hurt me none. It was very easy. One out of, only one out of a thousand tracts do anything. Can you imagine one out of a thousand? That's not good. But only one out of ten of those, the people read them and get serious about it and, try, and find out about Christianity and a one out of ten, that's only one out of a hundred thousand tracts that are given out. People became a born again per active believer. But it happens. There's nothing wrong with giving out tracts. Before we close the last thought, let me just say this. I was a young man in the Navy. I was fortunately born again as a teenager, and I happened to have Kyler Johnson. I still remember in our Bible Baptist church. Sad to say it's become a King James only legalistic church because the pastor, a new pastor came. But in those days, they taught the Word of God, and I became strong faith, and I went in the Navy, and I knew I was a Christian believer, but I was coasting. It was, no one was with me. It was, I was on my own. I was down Key West waiting for four months for the Torpedoman School. I was walking along the beach in Key West, Florida, not a person within a kilometer. That's six cents of a mile. Don't forget that. 
And I said, I looked down and I saw something pink and I pulled it out of the paper and it was this little old gospel track, Key West Baptist Temple. And it said, God's simple plan of salvation. The plan of salvation in there is good, but not, it could be done a lot better, I can tell you that. But when I read that, I thought, wow, that track struck me. The Holy Spirit convicted me that I, that I was a drifter. And it's kind of like the pastor talked about these other people. There's some of these other things that you guys preached about. There's some people that probably are true believers, but they just they need to get the word of God to get their life straight. And I had become a drifter. I, hadn't, I did not doubt my salvation at all. If you'd asked me, I'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I knew I was. But I drifted. That time I fell on the knees in the sand of Key West, Florida. I gave my life to Christ. And there's never been a day since then I didn't want to serve Jesus Christ. But there have been plenty of days I chose to serve Ron Minton, not Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. As Christians, we're going to sin. We get knocked down. We get dirty. But we confess our sins. First John 1, 9, we get up. And dust us, he forgives us. We dust the dirt off and we get back in the Bible. That's what we do because we're part of the team. And I love, this, I love this very last thing here. Matthew started out in chapter 1 by the angel coming down and saying, he's going to come, you Christians, and listen up. You're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means what? Anybody remember? You're going to call him God with us. From the very beginning, Matthew says, don't worry, you Christian believers. God's going to be with us. We're on the team. We win. I've read the last end of the book, and we win. And then in the middle of Matthew, Jesus said, if two or three are together in my name, guess what? I'm right there with you. And Matthew closes his book. The very last thing Jesus says, I'm going to guarantee you this. I'm going to be with you right down to the very end. And... I shouldn't even mention this in this church, but there's the worst translation ever made on the planet Earth by human beings is the cotton patch edition. <laughs> Jerusalem is Waxahachie. No, Jerusalem is Atlanta. The Jordan River is the Waxahachie River. But I like how they ended to, and Tanya won't recognize this because this is an American situation, because she doesn't know this game that much. This thing says, Jesus promised, I'm going to be with you right down to the last inning. And that's really true. It's not over till the last inning is over. And Jesus is saying, as long as you're alive, you have my promise, the word of God, you can take that and use it. It never fails because it's my word. We're weak, but he's strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful grace of Jesus in our lives. Romans says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's something that we cannot get over because we owe you everything. But the wonderful thing is that by your grace, not only did you give us eternal life, but you give us opportunity and responsibility to carry your word around the world. Thank you for the right here in Preston City that the church is taking this word around this town, the state, the state and around the world and increase our border and our faith that we can serve you even more by learning and obeying your word until Jesus Christ comes again. Amen.